0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Upahamu Africa, a podcast on life and politics on the continent. I'm Kimmy Dion, your host, and I'm joined by my co host, Rachel Beatty Riedahl.
1: Hi, Rachel. Hi, Kim, and hello to our listeners. Today, Kim and I are very pleased to share with you a little listen in to part one of our recently completed African Studies Association panel on African democracy, focusing on pathways that connect trends around backsliding, as well as democratic resistance, resilience, sites and actors that are working to strengthen democratic practice and democratic governance. So here you'll hear uh, me give a little intro about the panel as a whole, and then Kim talking about her case on Malawi written with Boniface Dulani. And then next week, you can tune in for a presentation from Alexandra Blackman, an assistant professor of government at Cornell University, who discusses her case of, of democratic backsliding in Tunisia.
0: Right. And later in this season, you're going to hear Rachel and I talk about, you know, at the beginning of 2024, we're going to talk about some of the upcoming elections. So recent and upcoming elections in Africa, as well as other moves towards and away from democracy. So um, we're excited to share this panel with you, and we want to hear what you think about it. So let us know, you know, send us us an email or drop something in the comments um, on our site. We'd love to hear what you're thinking about um, these case studies, but also what your experiences with um, democracy, democratic backsliding, or democratic resilience in the countries where you live. So I want to share some big news from the African School of Economics this week, So the African School of Economics, we also call it the ASE, is a pan-African university educating and training Africa's next generation of scholars and leaders. Um, They officially announced expansion to Zanzibar. Um, Now, the ASE is partnering with the Charter Cities Institute, which will provide extensive assistance in this expansion to Zanzibar. So for folks who don't know, the original campus of the African School of Economics is in Benin, which is the home country of its... Um, Founder and president and our dear friend, Leonard Wanchakan. we're so excited for Leonard and for the ASC. So congratulations. We're thrilled to see the realization of Leonard's vision for African-based institutions to teach the next generation of African scholars and development practitioners. Now, for our listeners who are unfamiliar with the ASC, we'll, of course, include links in our show notes so that you can find more I also just want to encourage folks now I'm not telling anyone to get on Twitter these days but I will make an exception you should find and follow the ASC on Twitter. Um I still refuse to call it X. Like I just call it Twitter. Um now the ASC recently started posting weekly news roundups. Um it's just this like 2 minute video roundup of the past Weeks news in headlines and photos. And so let me just give a rundown of the most recent one, right? These are all headlines that I think our listeners would be curious to, you know, know more about, but also to just be up on what's happening. So, for example, Guinea-Bissau's president Umaro Sisoko Mbalo dissolved parliament over a coup attempt. Mali and Niger's military governments announced plans to end decades-long tax agreements with France. Burkina Faso removes French as the official language um you know Mauritania's former president Mohamed Ould Abdel Aziz sentenced to 5 years for corruption heavy rainfall leads to flooding and landslides leaving 65 dead in Tanzania and it's not just all bad news um and not just all focused on you know presidents or leaders um there're also um in those in those headlines you know they talked about the Marrakesh film festival the women's african cup of nation qualifier games so there's also you know society and culture and sports wrapped in as well and what's important you know if you think about some of the countries that are mentioned in those headlines and in this you know two minute news roundup that you can get on twitter from the asc's twitter feed it's mostly francophone countries and for those of us who are anglophones right like you know we speak english and we don't get a lot of french language news um you know or even you know Reporting from French speaking African countries, we might miss out on some of these major events that are happening in Francophone countries. And so one of the great things about um, the ASE and its location in Benin, which is a former French colony where many people speak French, right, that 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 curated two-minute news roundup is going to give you a lot about, you know, again, it's just headlines, but it's going to keep you up to date on a lot of what's happening in French-speaking Africa.
1: Absolutely, Kim. I'm excited to see this as a source. Congratulations to Leonard and to the ASE. And for those of our listeners who are grad students um, and out on the job market, I know uh, in speaking with Leonard recently that there's gonna, they're going to be doing some more hiring. So that's another good reason um, to keep an eye on their first rate faculty and, um, and some of the op- opportunities that might be coming our way for fellow scholars. The other topic I wanted to just bring up this week, Kim, is um, about COP, COP28, in, that's just closing out this week in Dubai, the United Nations Climate Change Conference. Now, as it closes, it's coming to its final days, um, some are hailing what might be called an accomplishment, quote, an agreement that signals the beginning of the end of fossil fuel era by laying the ground for a swift just an equitable transition underpinned by deep emissions cuts and scaled up finance. So this sounds exciting, right? Right? We've got, you know, global solidarity negotiators from nearly 200 parties coming together in Dubai and really this effort to ratchet up climate action before the end of this decade with the overarching aim to keep the global temperature limit of 1.5 degrees Celsius increase within our sites. Now, this is obviously by no means a foregone conclusion, and we've seen many agreements that have been made, not least the Paris Agreement, where um, we're still not making progress on the implementation. So that's really, I think, the big question, right, is now governments and businesses need to turn this pledge into real economic outcomes, into action, into implementation without delay. So we know that there are are, continue to be these very strong warnings by climate scientists, the rec- most recent IPCC, that the world has to act urgently to address global warming, to address environmental health, to address our ability as a planet and humanity and a multi-species ecosystem to survive and thrive in a healthy um, way. So um, for those who listened to our conversation just last week with Professor Owusu, who's the director of the Center for Sustainability and Environment at the University of Ghana, they'll have heard that, of course, there are a number of different climate change conversations and initiatives across Africa. Um, Nicholas Simpson has a nice article out in the conversation, which we'll include a link to. And these initiatives range from a push for new climate financing, which then allows the ability to. push towards different types of energy and, um, and not just coal or oil. But um, some of the priorities really are, you know, contrasting there are different opinions about how to go about this necessary transition and what it means for the continent. So, In general, developing countries, including some across Africa, um, face a dilemma about how to transition to net zero emissions at the same time as they're trying to grow their economies, provide for sustainable development, provide for that kind of well-being, environmental, and and for humanity. Um, As uh, another article in The Conversation explains by Olabisi Akingube. many countries are caught between climate change laws which encourage finance flows to projects that comply with these low emission standards and investment laws that give developed countries increasing pressure to use their valuable natural resources to meet their development goals. So this really is a a quandary. And so thinking about how tech, finance, Geographic kind of environmental conditions and political and social needs come together to make for the most strategic decisions around um, how we can all move forward and to meet um, development goals and and health and well being goals um, across the countries. I think so. COP twenty eight presents maybe something exciting, but a lot of questions. I think the devil is in the details about the implementation.
0: For sure, I think. Um... I I think you're right on that. And I don't know if you um, had already seen it because we had just published it um, today. We're recording this on on Thursday for our listeners. But your colleague at Cornell, Jeremy Wallace, actually wrote about COP28 for Good Authority um, that was published today. And the big takeaway that he shared um, was that an energy transition is coming. I think that's, you know, something we learned from the agreement, the improvements made at COP28, um, but that that energy transmi- transition may not be as fast as it's needed. Um, so Jeremy's a political scientist. And um, so, of course, he's going to talk about the rules, right, and, and institutions. And, um, and, and that's actually one of the things I really love about the piece that he wrote. And namely, it's about how um, COP, which is short for the Conference on Parties, Um, how COP requires consensus for adoption of a given climate resolution. Now, some people who are concerned about climate change attack consensus rules as leading to weak results, right? Because you've got to get everyone on board, right? Consensus is not like a majority vote, right? It's like everyone has to agree. And um, the concern is that when you have consensus rules, petrostates, right? Places that rely on oil are going to veto any major changes, right? So you're just going to have these kind of watered down resolutions. in order for them to be acceptable, to make it past the gauntlet of, um, you know, say petrostates, for example. But Jeremy points out that we tend to downplay the flip side of that, and that's the requirement of unanimity also means that microstates, right, such as island nations that worry about their future survival if their territories are submerged, right, by oceans rising because of, um, you know, the the earth getting warmer and melting all the ice caps, right that that those tiny island nations have a voice beyond their political or economic might. You know, I don't think you would, you know, um, imagine, you know, an island nation like Samoa, Fiji, or African island nations, right, like Comoros or Seychelles, um, Mauritius, having such a, a powerful um, stance from which they can make these, um, these statements are not going to be you know listen to perhaps in other international settings right in international um, conferences or or bodies because um because they are small but you know because of the cop consensus rules right there are some benefits for um for consensus in making sure that um you know that everyone is um has a voice and you know the loudest applause went you know, during the entire conference went to one of these microstates. So I think that there's, um, I don't know, reading Jeremy's piece, it made me feel like maybe we're not making huge leaps at cop 28, but there's, there's reason for optimism. And I think as, you know, as the earth is warming and we're growing more and more concerned about the future of the planet for us and for our kids, um, I need a little optimism here and
1: there. Um, think about climate change. That's such, yeah, so helpful to have Jeremy's explainer. And also when we look at, you know, to your point, Kim, the platform that, that, you know, COP provides to real climate vanguards like Mia Motley, the prime minister of Barbados, who is just like this incredibly inspiring leader, leader, not only of Barbados, but on this topic, thinking about healthy environments and justice and how those things go together. So um, a lot to pay attention to here from this set of conversations and to keep the pressure on, really. It's up to all of us to demand this for for our futures and for for the next generation, I think that we owe it to. Indeed. So talking
0: about demands, let's move to Rachel introducing the panel on democracy
1: in Africa. Awesome. And after those opening remarks, you'll hear Kim talking about the Malawi case she did with Boniface Dulani. Take a listen. We're responding with this set of panelists to two simultaneous empirical realities. One is that globally, Backsliding it is happening in what we might call endogenous processes, right? It's being autocrats, um, executives, presidents are using nominally democratic institutions to uh, limit democratic freedom and participation. This is happening in the United States. This is happening in Europe. It's happening in Latin America, Asia, and Africa. And so in order to look at this different type of autocratization from past types, uh, particularly from, in contrast to military coups, um, we need to be able to understand what, how those processes are happening and then what the entry points are for redemocratizing or contesting that autocratization from within. This moment globally also tells us that Shavorsky's kind of maxim that advanced industrial democracies don't break down above a certain threshold because they can use sufficient resources to redistribute is not correct today. We cannot predict from past historical patterns to be able to understand this contemporary moment of global uh, capitalist ac- accumulation and inequality. So these kind of inequalities interact with cleavages around the world race, region, linguistics, uh, religious affiliation, citizen versus foreigner we've seen uh, in numerous right-wing victories in Europe. So this is a global pattern. And secondly, That said, we should caution against reading such global patterns directly onto African regime transitions and contestations. This panel is here today to take up a nuanced analysis of both the successes and limits of democratic resilience, how democratic resistance and fighting for democracy from within um, has been successful in in several cases, where its limitations have been, where it has not been successful, um, and by um, thinking about what set of cases the African conversation can um, inform back to the global conversation. So in in many cases, our discussions around Malawi and Zambia um, have been informative for thinking about what kinds of opposition strategies might be successful and useful in thinking about Latin America or Eastern Europe, for example. um, that is to say, also that the set of intra-African comparisons tells us very much in line with the new edited volume by um, Jamie, uh, by uh, Nick Vanderwal and Lisa Rockner and Leah Ariola, that the mean of democratic regime in Africa is not changing dramatically, right? So we don't see a huge rush to the bottom. We don't see huge democratic backsliding trends in Africa as a whole um, in aggregation. What we have in general are slight reversions around the mean. Um, so here in that sense, we see many cases, There is, uh, there, are pa- there are moments of democratic backsliding, there are moments of democratic victories. Um, and so these are ongoing contestations. They've continued to be ongoing contest- contestations. And those countries that have kind of been above the threshold, South Africa, Ghana, um, Botswana, um, Senegal, Zambia—certainly, really significant contestations. We went to a fabulous uh, panel yesterday on on what's happening in Senegal, but the democratic game uh, continues to be very meaningful. Benin, I would say, as you know, for Dominica online is a very sad exception there, and. The challenges of state capacity continue to make uh, practicing democracy and democratic governance very um, challenging, Um, particularly we see this in the case of Mali and and, uh, questions around the return uh, of coups. And competitive authoritarianism still remains the dominant kind of mode of multi-party competition in which elections still provide focal points for opposition to meaningfully contest, not at all by any means free and fair, um, but those are significant contestations to an authoritarian incumbent. So this is to say that the lay of the land in, in, in Africa, we are not seeing a kind of huge democratic backsliding Um, uh, 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 um, overall pattern, but what we are seeing are these same types of strategies across the continent around trying to open up democratic spaces and therefore we can learn a lot from them. So from... Pulling from the kind of cross-regional global project, I just want to give a few key takeaways that then can set up um, what our case study authors um, are going to explain in more detail um, across this set of of really interesting and pivotal cases. And so the first key takeaway from the global cross-regional report is that we need to differentiate between sources of democratic resilience And strategies of resistance, right? So the sources of democratic resilience include structural or institutional factors that are helpful in restraining backsliding by making it harder for incumbents to concentrate power or to strengthen um, that, that strengthens the capacity of opponents to block backsliding measures. These sources of democratic resilience include highly proportional electoral systems multiple veto points that distribute power across different institutions, potentially federalism and independent state or local governments where you can have footholds of democratic competition, rules that reinforce the independence of courts, of electoral commissions, of vibrant opposition parties, independent media and civil society actors, and often legacies and practices, social political repertoires of past Reversals of backsliding or authoritarian rule that, that um, contemporary actors can draw upon. So you can see that these kinds of things are, are sources of resilience that can be pulled upon. They're not enough to protect democracy in any given context. So then, what are resistance strategies? These encompass the sites of contestations and the institutions and the actors' strategies, very agential, that contribute to the defense and continued practice of democracy and may even forge deeper democratic practice in the wake of intense contestation over its constitutive form. So we see in the United States, for example, that democracy is certainly under threat. There are these sources of ongoing contestation. And so what comes next, whether it's deeper, it's a more democratic backsliding or a kind of expanded and participatory oriented um, democracy is is, these are all things in question in these strategies of resistance. So resistance strategies um, include opposition political parties, pro-democracy civil society, and they can choose from a range of different options. So key choices include the adoption of institutional versus extra-institutional strategies of resistance. So that is to say, riots and boycotts on one side. We our cross-regional analysis demonstrates as being um, counterproductive, not very useful. Um, whereas protests. And institutional forms of competition, so going to elections, um, even if it only if even if you're saying these elections are flawed, even if you're contesting um, the outcome, using the courts to contest the outcomes, etc. Um, those kinds of institutional routes have have shown to be much more effective, and in combination with protest, because the co- protest itself can give courage to the institutional sites and can legitimize and justify often the kind of judicial proceedings or the legislative proceedings or the electoral commission to make hard decisions in key and pivotal moments. So we saw that the interaction of protest and institutional contestation was quite key. The second main choice, and and again, this is global globally relevant, is whether or not the opposition forces are able to compete in broad op- uh, coalitions. Right. So we know there are so many reasons why it's difficult for the opposition to coalesce, to come together. There are ideological differences, there are representative differences, but the ability to come together in a pro democracy coalition is key time and time again. And so that means strategies for overcoming pre existing divides. And then it's also clear that if those coalitions, pro democracy coalitions, are successful, then they need to be able to take up the grievances of the people that they are addressing, right? So that's often the hard work after a victory is to be able to overcome those, uh, those differences and to be able to address the grievances that led to their election. The third choice is whether to politicize or to play down the regime cleavage around we're fighting for democracy versus authoritarianism. That's one strategy. The opposite strategy is to uh, play down that that um, concern and focus on performance, valence issues, governance, and experience. So we've seen a bit of um, counteracting evidence on this. On one hand, it's very important to to politicize and to emphasize the regime cleavage because that helps the second strategy, it helps form that coalition of otherwise divided opposition. But politicizing it into a kind of us versus them polarizing, um, you know, antithetical enemy type of language is dangerous because it just ratchets up the stakes. It makes it difficult, more and more difficult to, uh, to consider potential losses. Um, and the authoritarians tend to kind of become even more Uh, uh, and uh, against toleration. Um, And so that kind of pernicious polarization where it goes into us versus them tends to be counterproductive. Whereas emphasizing the overlap between we're fighting for democracy and we're fighting for experience, governance, valence issues and bringing those things together emphasizing how performance can contribute to that democratic role has been uh, more successful. So those are the key takeaways. And I just want to kind of set that stage as we hand it over to our case study authors to um, demonstrate um, how those things have been playing out in the particular um, cases at hand. So um, Kim, should we start with you and Bonnie? Great. So. Um... We, Boniface
0: Dulani um, at the University of Malawi, and I wrote a case on Malawi, and we uh, are titling Malawi's Democratic Erosion and Resilience, looking at the period from uh, 2000 to 2022. Um, Here is um, the Varieties of Democracy Dataset, VDEMs, Characterization of Liberal Democracy in Malawi. Everything looks pretty flat. So uh, with a little spike here uh, around 2019, 2020, it's uh, 2020 is the year that The Economist uh, called Malawi uh, its country of the year. And it's because of um, its democratic resilience. Um, But what's missing from this V Dem characterization of democracy in Malawi, are um oh sorry so let me just say right bonnie and i wrote a piece about this kind of if you don't already know in february 2020 the high court in malawi decided to overturn the 2019 presidential elections um and there was you know the the case for that was this laundry list of uh, election irregularities um and so the president at the time who was elected in 2019 peter mutarika was ruled to not be duly elected, and they called for fresh elections. Those elections were held in um, in uh, June 2020, and he was ousted, and uh, Lazarus Chakwera became the next president. Importantly, in this um, ruling, there was a reinterpretation that the the usage of a plurality standard for the presidency was actually inconsistent with the Constitution, and that they were no they then. Um, ask Parliament to go ahead and, you know, you actually need to amend the election rules so that it's consistent with the Constitution, which requires a, a majority. Um, and we argue that key to this ruling. Are you know a couple of things that you just heard Rachel talk about, and that is the independence of Malawi's judiciary, and also the months of street protests, Malawians taking to the streets and um, protesting the um, electoral commission, um, calling for the the commissioner to be fired, um, right, and, and calling for fresh elections. It wasn't necessarily protests against the president, which I think is really interesting and an important distinction to make, um, but even in as much as the VDEM data has that 2020 spike, it's missing what we consider to be autocratizing events. Um, so in 2002, Bekele Malusi trying to um, get a third term in office. 2011, Wa Mutariko was engaging in a lot of significant oppression um, of the opposition and, and really his critics in general. And then in 2012, an attempted subversion of the Constitution um, following the wake of the president's death in office. So to just talk about these, right? Bikili Malusi um, you know, for a few years actually tried to seek a, a third term in various ways, um, narrowly lost uh the, the fight in parliament to kind of introduce this um this uh amendment to the constitution to allow him to serve for a third term. He then tries to like, have this hand-picked successor, nobody who, who he thought he could like rule from behind the scenes also didn't work. Um, so ultimately he's unsuccessful. Um, also missing from this is the 2011, I think it's, you know, pretty clear. Um, you know, there were these protests, uh, in Malawi in 2011 following serious degradation in economic and political governance. Um, you know, Harassment of the media, harassment of the critics, our colleague Blessings Chinsinga was detained by the inspector general of police because a student in his classroom informed on him. You know, a lot of things were happening in 2011 um, that, you know, the media was reporting on. So it's not like it wasn't a known fact. And importantly, our colleagues who have closely studied Malawian politics have, you know, written academic articles kind of substantiating the real serious um backsliding that was happening during this time. And also, you know, these are, I also highly recommend these articles because I think they do a great job of um, you know, giving us insights into um the things that pushed back against Mutarika's um, backsliding. So 2002 to 2004, then this 2011. And then, you know, who can forget, right? Um, Bingwa Mutarika dies in office. And, you know, there were two days where we didn't even know, well, I shouldn't say I knew he was dead, but that's just because I had a friend who worked in the hospital. I was like, he's definitely dead. Um, but, but the Malawian public, right, the... You know, there was um there was a push by agents in the government who were loyal to this now dead president and to his brother, who they hoped to install as the successor, right? Uh this is just a, a screen cap of um of the press briefing of six ministers on state television saying, our president is ill and he's being flown to South Africa. And um, what they're trying to do is to create the opportunity for the president's brother to become president. Um, you know, even though the constitutional succession would be that it's the vice president. Um, of course, you know Boniface and I have written about this previously, about you know kind of an in-depth take of what happened in that 2012 succession um, and those 48 hours um, where you know it was not clear that um, you know what would work, uh, like who would become the next president. Ultimately, it was Vice President Joyce Banda, and then she proceeded to disappoint everyone and not get elected in 2014. But that's for a different uh, a different paper. In looking at those, particularly looking at those um, what we consider kind of these autocratizing periods, um, what are the things that you know kept Malawi from fully backsliding into its um, previous regime type um, of authoritarianism. And really key is the courts, um, but also civil society. Maybe the military uh, played a role, uh, mainstream religious groups, the media, and you know, some would argue at least in the 2002 to 2004 period, the legislature played a role as well. Um, there might also be some favorable conditions Um, And I I put favorable in quotes because people being poor and having like a terrible economy is not a favorable condition. But that's part of the thing that gets people out into the streets, right, to call for for better economic and political governance. Um, But also at the time in in the time of these three, um, three different autocratizing um, periods. We also see an absence of polarization. Now I put a question mark after that because I actually think that that's not long lasting. I think that there's there should be concern about po- increasing polarization in Malawi as we go forward. So to just speak briefly about Malawi's judiciary, Peter von Dopp's work does a great job of kind of characterizing Malawi in comparison to other places on the continent, um, especially in Southern Africa, that the judiciary has this relative independence Um, It's known to rule against sitting incumbents, especially when public opinion is supportive. So again, kind of reaching back to Rachel's comments earlier, um, you know, the thing about people in the streets is it sends a signal to the judiciary that, you know what, if you rule against this incumbent, the people would support you, right? So this is why, um, you know, this, so the judiciary has this independence and power, but there is something about what's happening in the streets or what's known through public opinion polls that can give them um, some confidence in their rate right, some some courage, I would say, as 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 Rachel used. Um, so they played key roles in the 2012 transition when the president died in office and in the reinterpretation of the Constitution in 2019. That's that's trying to put more power to, um, you know, the, the public and saying, like, you can't just have a simple plurality to win the presidency anymore. You actually have to get. Um, mass support. Um, Malawi civil society. Now, Clive Gabay has written that um, this civil society, the civil society in Malawi, is disciplined and docile, and they're reliant on donor funding, and they're reluctant to challenge the government. And I think that that's true um, to some extent. But I also think that civil society leaders, they may have a latent capacity to call for protests, and sometimes when they do that, it's actually quite effective, and those mass protests. I think, have been a pretty powerful check on presidential power. Um, And as Lisa Rockner has written, right, there's, um, you know, when civil society has chosen to do this and has been successful, they've been very key to to, um, resisting autocratization. So, you know, I could talk more. People have questions about the military and and the legislature and why, like, they don't get their own slides because they're not as, they haven't been as powerful as the the judiciary and civil society. Um, but I think, you know, um, I don't know, if if there's anything that wants that you want like hope for democracy, um, you know, it's people. It's people power. And um, and maybe it's courts, but I guess that depends on the country you live in. So um that's it for me.
1: Thank you so much. Kate.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Ufahamu Africa. You can find more episodes, show notes, and transcripts on our website, ufahamuafrica.com. This podcast is produced and managed by Megan DeMint, with help from production assistants Chukufunanya Ikachuku, Alex Kozak, and Ami Tamaklo. We are generously supported by the Carnegie Corporation of New York and receive research assistance from Cornell University and the University of California, Riverside. Our music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. Until next week, safiri salama.